chapter 44. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. We also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. And the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word In my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. 
and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to shale. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shale. For your servant became a pledge to safe, of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. You can go ahead and be seated. Incredible story. Let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing on our time today, on on our time in his word. Father, we come thanking you for your word. We thank you, God, for its power to pierce us, the depths of our souls. We think of Peter in Acts 2 and how he preached, and how your, your people there were cut to the heart. They fell on their faces in their hearts before you. What must we do to be saved? God, how, how grateful we are that we get to have your word to show us the way to Christ, the way to the city of light, out of the domain of darkness. Father, you lead us by the hand to the new heavens and the new earth on the back of Christ. We praise you for that. We thank you for what we read earlier in Isaiah 53. The glories of the gospel preached 700 years before Christ came. A reminder as we prepare for Advent that Christ was to come before the foundation of the world. And he was promised to Adam and Eve. And he has been promised ever since. We gather in his name. We gather for the sake of his name among all the nations, as Paul starts his letter to the Romans. We gather for his glory, that his glory would fill the earth. We gather because of him. Lord, we praise you for him. We pray that as we go through this chapter of the story of Joseph, that we would savor Christ. We would savor the gospel. We would savor redemptive history. We would savor all 
the fulfillment of your promises, that they will come in full. Help us trust you. Thank you for this time. We pray that you would use it to guide each of us to yourself and that you would convert sinners, that you would sanctify the elect, sanctify your people gathered here today. We pray for all the churches here in Noonan and around in Georgia and the U.S. and around the world gathered this day to praise your holy name. Would you be hallowed and would your people be edified? In Jesus' name, amen. So we will discuss this more as we go on, but for now, I want us to consider that the results of this test that we read this morning, as we go through it, we're going to go through the details, we're going to unpack the narrative and see what's going on here, all that's present here, or at least we'll try to dig in the best we can. But I want you to see that the results of this test are a testimony of one supreme thing. And that is the grace of God. What we are reading in this story as we follow the journey of these brothers. We are reading about God's grace. We are seeing that God is faithfully fulfilling his covenant. And he is mercifully restoring hearts. We're seeing that all along the way. There's there's the big picture and the small picture. The big picture is God's grand plan of redemption. This family. The promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the big picture. God is moving forward his program. And that's a a testimony to God's grace. All throughout history. We see it with the kings of Israel. We see it with the people All of them following after Baal and and there is Elijah and everyone is following a false god. Elijah is told later 7,000 men have not. But the nation as a whole, yet God is gracious with the nation. And we see that all throughout. God is gracious with the disciples of Jesus, with Peter. And we see it here with these brothers. His covenant-keeping faithfulness. But we also see on the, on the minute level, on the smallest level, that the God of Israel, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the God who made the heavens and the earth cares about an individual soul. He cares about individual hearts. So yes, his, his grace is seen in him moving forward his program, but we also see his grace in working in the hearts and minds of these brothers. So everywhere we see God's grace. And I think as we, before we even dig in, God's dealings with these brothers gives us hope and it encourages us to call out to him in the midst of any sin. So listen this morning, you're here and maybe you're just beat down with your sin. And yes, you have sinned against God. Yes, you have allowed repeatedly for these debauched habits to come into your life. And and even maybe this morning you feel consumed by your choices. Maybe even this morning you defiantly sinned against God. Maybe even right now in the imaginations of your heart and where you're allowing your mind to go, you are sinning against God. What you need to see in these brothers 
is a merciful, compassionate Savior. A merciful, compassionate God who says to you, call out to God in the midst of your sin. Call out to him, seeking his wondrous mercy. I've been reading a book lately called The Bruised Reed. If you haven't read that book, I recommend it. If your heart feels cold towards God, if you feel as though God is standing over you like a taskmaster, and you don't feel the compassion of Christ, his mercy, his love for the sinner, this is a book that will just warm your heart and it will remind you of the real disposition of Jesus towards you as a Christian. I love how Richard Sibbs, who wrote that book, it's a Puritan book, how he comments repeatedly that one of the great battles we fight is to fight the lies of Satan concerning Christ. The lies that Satan puts in our minds, in our hearts, concerning the disposition of Christ towards us. And how this book, this wonderful little Puritan classic, remedies that wrong thinking. So let's look. Let's get into this passage this morning. So first, we have testing. In commenting on chapter 44, Derek Kidner writes, Joseph's strategy already brilliantly successful in creating the situations and tensions he required now produces its master stroke. So what does this master stroke? We've seen Joseph working these circumstances and situations, testing his brothers. What does this master stroke, this final test involve? Two parts. The planting and the punishing. So I want to look at each of those as we go through this first part. So first, the planting. And we see this in verses 1 to 13. Prior to the brother's departure, Joseph gives instructions to his steward to plant his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. Now this silver cup in in that culture for a man of Joseph's status, was meant really to convey three things, or it was meant for, it had three functions. First, it was something that he would simply drink out of. But secondly, it was a symbol of his status. Remember, the cup bearer would bring the cup to Pharaoh, that cup being a symbol of Pharaoh's status. Not any old cup, but the cup of Pharaoh. And here we see this is not any old cup. This is the silver cup of Joseph, the man directly under Pharaoh. But we also have this practice of of hydromancy, which is a a way of sort of uh, figuring out omens and what's going to happen. It's a a pagan practice. It's a a magical practice where the the liquids in the cup, the way they move, isn't that ridiculous? That's, That's what the human heart does. That's the sinfulness of humanity, that you would watch the liquid in a cup to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow. And this is what's practiced all throughout Egypt. Well, of course, Joseph is posing here as a person who's just very much a part of this Egyptian culture. And so he has this silver cup. I I seriously doubt Joseph ever stirred the water to see what would happen tomorrow. Of course, he didn't. God had revealed to him 
many things and dreams. But that is what's going on with this silver cup. And the silver is reminiscent of the 20 shekels of silver. Remember that the brothers received when they sold Joseph into slavery. So the silver is kind of wrapped into this entire story. The brothers, of course, have no idea that this silver cup has been planted in one of their bags. And the next morning, they leave the city to return to Canaan. You can imagine how elated. I mean, talk about bursting a bubble. Talk about popping a bubble. Here we are. These guys have just left Egypt. They've just left the city. And you can imagine how elated they are. They have retrieved Simeon and retained Benjamin. Score! They have found favor in the eyes of the Lord of the land. So, hey, in years to come, they can always just come back and get some more food. They're on good terms. They'll probably have another meal with him and get all that they need and then some and won't even have to pay for it because the money will be returned back into their sacks. They have the best relationship with this most powerful person. All their needs are met. I mean, these guys are on cloud nine. They're going to be able to walk back into Jacob's presence with Benjamin and all this food. And Simeon's back. Dad, look. And they have plenty of food for their families in the short term. But this sense of elation is soon reversed. Once the brothers are a short distance away from the city... Joseph instructs his steward to go out and to overtake the men and to accuse them of stealing the silver cup that he had planted in one of their sacks. To accuse them of repaying evil for good. All that I have done for you. You're going to steal my silver cup. All that I've done for you. When the steward meets them, his words are met with utter shock. I mean, these guys are not only filled with joy, but, but they, they are innocent with respect to anything like this. In fact, they had come forward before and stated their innocence. They are, this is met with total shock. How could we do such a thing? Didn't we return the money left in our sacks the first time? No way. And they are so confident in their innocence that they say in verse 9, Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. That's how confident they are. And we also will be my Lord's servants. Just check. It's not here. Similar confidence that Jacob had. Remember when he was leaving Laban's house and Rachel had stolen the household gods. Of course no one in my party has stolen the household gods. Of course Rachel had and she sat on them and was not father did not come and inspect to get them. It was same, same kind of confidence here. The steward softens their outlandish consequence, saying that the one who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. So the search began. Each man's sack is lowered to the ground, and each sack is searched for the, from the eldest down to the youngest. And of course, the silver cup is at last found. And of all places, it is in the sack of Benjamin. Now, we don't know everything the brothers said. In fact, as we've read the various uh, parts of this story, especially today, we'll see that a lot of the details from the conversation in the earliest encounter were not given there. They're given later. 
So we don't know everything that the brothers said at this particular moment, but 13, verse 13 captures the intensity of their emotions. Whatever they said, it really doesn't matter because we got a very clear take here on what happened in their hearts. Verse 13, then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Well, this is reaping what they, were, what they sowed. This is reaping and sowing. Chapter 37, verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments. Do you remember that? Do you remember when the brothers brought back news? They took, they sold Joseph. They had ripped off his multicolored garment that his father had given him. And then they took that back to their brother, back to their father, Jacob, dipped in goat's blood. And they presented it to their father with all this blood on it. And what did their father do was the very first thing their father did. He tore his clothes, a sign of intense grief. Here, the brothers are in a distressing Situation in which they too tear their garments. We also see here a unity between the brothers. Notice that. A solidarity. They are tearing and returning together. Do you see that? Not one or two of them tears the clothes and the rest don't. But all of them tear the clothes and all of them as a group return together. Here we are seeing a, 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 little, a little bit of God's grace at work in this family. God is at work in and among them. They have come closer and closer and closer together. They are one unit, these brothers. Second, we see the punishing. So we see as we think about the testing, we see the planting of the cup. Now we see the punishing. The other part of this test, verses 14 to 17. When the brothers return, they throw themselves down before Joseph. And receive his rebuke. Once again, we have Joseph's dreams in action. This is the third time. The third time that these brothers have fallen down in front of their brother Joseph. The third time that the dreams that God gave to Joseph have been fulfilled. So you can imagine once they find out that this man has been Joseph all along, how immediately they remember we fell down to him, we fell down to him, and we fell down to him. Wow. This was always God's plan. And that, of course, I think helps them understand that, that what Joseph said is true. That what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And, and to be able to let, to let go of the past and move forward. Those fulfilled dreams. We'll talk more about this in a moment. But Judah, as the spokesman, offers no defense. And he yields to the consequences. Look at verse 16, the end of verse 16. We are my Lord's servants. Both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. And this, of course, plays right into Joseph's hand. Now he is ready to put the final touches on his test. Look at verse 17. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. What will the brothers do? That's the big question. Now we know, we've just read it, but if we stop here, it really is quite a cliffhanger. What will the brothers do in this moment? One commentator, Kenneth Matthews, puts it this way. Now the brothers, now the brothers face the moment of truth. 
when they can either abandon their brother or save him. The situation with Joseph has been recreated. Do you see the beauty of this? The beauty of this divinely orchestrated event. Joseph himself skillfully orchestrating all of this. The the situation with Joseph has been recreated. They, They got rid of Joseph, this favorite of their father, and they received this silver. Now they can get rid of Benjamin and receive their freedom. No more favorite of their father. All of Rachel's sons extinguished. This favorite wife, whom our father loved more than our mother. These brothers, whom our dad dotes on all the time. Now the other son of Rachel can be done away with. And they themselves can leave peacefully. What will they do? What's in their hearts? What is their desire? Is there jealousy and hatred as there was before? Or is there love? I want to stop for a moment and just make this point to us. Testing like this shows us what's in the heart. Have you ever experienced that as a Christian? You've been going through your Christian life and things are just kind of normal and and it's just full speed ahead. No real bumps. Every day kind of the same. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe you do. But it's just sort of moving along. No real issues. And then all of a sudden there's a crisis. All of a sudden there's a serious trial. It really does expose your heart. Kind of like when you're working on something and you just can't get it to go. Which happens to me all the time. For some of you that doesn't happen very often. But when I'm working with something mechanical like a lawnmower or anything for that matter. It just doesn't work for me. It's easy. It reveals what's in the heart. What you start saying. What you start thinking. How you start grumbling. How you start feeling. It's like my little daughter when she's playing with her baby dolls and she's trying to get that, that, that shirt on and it won't go around the arms. And she keeps trying and she keeps trying. It's frustrating. It's so frustrating. We see that. And adults do the same thing, these little adult temper tantrums. But we see this. This happens. Our testing, moments of testing, reveal all that's in the heart, all that impatience, all that propensity to grumble and everything else. It tells us where our ultimate affections lie and also how we need to grow. It also tells us how we have grown. Isn't that a grace of God? That the testing does not just highlight how bad we are. It doesn't just highlight all the ways in which sin has taken over our hearts. God is merciful to show us that. But he's also merciful to show us when he tests us ways in which we did not respond that we used to respond. Ways we used to grumble or be impatient or have hatred in our hearts or anger in our hearts that we no longer have. And we see that. Whoa, how did that happen? I mean, that's not me. Well, it is you. That's the transformed you. That's the graced you. By the Holy Spirit. So we see what testing does. We saw this with Abraham in chapter 22 with the sacrifice of his son Isaac. Let's look at the second point this morning, the passing. So we've seen the testing, all that it's meant to accomplish, all that Joseph does to orchestrate it. Now we move to the passing. 
The short answer is that the brothers do indeed pass the test. They pass. We see this in two parts. First, in the submitting And secondly, in the substituting. So let's look at each of those as we go through. The submitting and the substituting. Most of what I want to look at here is in verses 17 to 34. Which is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. I didn't realize that until I came to it this week. But what we are reading, what Judah says to Joseph, is the longest recorded speech in the entire book of Genesis. And that's where we'll look at the substituting. But we'll come to that in a moment. I first want to look at the submitting. Let's read all of verse 16. I only read the latter part of it before because I wanted to point out what was going on with the testing. But now I want you to see the fullness of Judah's response to Joseph. Look at verse 16. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Period. What? That's not what you expect to read. That's not what you expect to read at all. What is Judah doing here? Is he confessing to the crime of stealing the cup? We've been caught. We've been found out. We're your slaves. That's what he says, essentially. He doesn't say we've been caught, we've been found out. But he, he, this is a, a kind of a form of confession. He makes no defense whatsoever. He simply says, okay, consequence come. And he even proposes a consequence. What is going on here? Well, it is not a confession to the crime of stealing the cup because they did not steal the cup. Instead, what we see here is submission. Notice this. This is, this is wonderful. Submission to the hand of God. Submission to the hand of God in all these circumstances because of their guilt. Remember when the money that they thought they had paid out was found returned in their sacks? Chapter 42, verse 28. If you want to flip over there, you can see this. Chapter 42, verse 28 says, He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. So the money was found in one of their sacks as they're going back. And of course, when they all get back to Canaan, they discover that all of the money has been returned. But one of them discovers this early on at the lodging place. And it says, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, listen to this. This Listen to this carefully. What is this that God has done to us? The brothers had already recognized their guilt. Chapter 42, verses 21 to 22. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So the conclusion that they've already drawn even before this moment is that God is bringing distress on them because of what they did to Joseph all those years ago. It is God who is doing all of these things to them. God is requiring a reckoning. 
They already recognize this. They've already stated this. We've already seen this in its infancy. We've already seen this in small form. The hand of God is behind what has happened to them. And that is what is in the mind of Judah. Catch this. As we think about him submitting, that is what is in the mind of Judah as he offers no defense whatsoever to this Lord of the land. They may be innocent with regard to the cup, but they are certainly not innocent in the eyes of God. See, they are lumping all of it together with respect to God. All that they are being accused of and all that they have faced and all that's gone before, they are gathering it all up into one thing, one single-minded approach to God. They are submitting themselves to God. Submission to God's judgment, God's punishment, God's discipline, a submission that is only possible through a full recognition of their own guilt. Do you see that? They cannot submit to this kind of punishment for a crime they did not commit had they not already come to a fully orbed understanding of their guilt. Do you see that? They've come to a full recognition of their guilt and what they did to Joseph. They've come to a full recognition that they deserve absolutely no favor from God whatsoever, but condemnation. And they have embraced that guilt. They have embraced that punishment. And they stand condemned before God. And therefore, they stand condemned before this this set of circumstances. We need to reflect on this and just remember that only God can work this recognition into the heart of a sinner. You know, that's the first thing that the Lord does when we come to him, is he shows us our sin. Now, we don't see the weightiness and awfulness of our sin immediately. That, that happens over time. We, we recognize that we are sinners before God. We own guilt. The culture, the world tells you to run from guilt, to suppress guilt. But you will run from guilt and suppress guilt all the way to hell. Because the only way to go to heaven is to embrace guilt, to own guilt before God. And to trust that God put that on Christ. That is the only path to glory. The path of suppressing guilt, the path of running from guilt is a path to condemnation. We must recognize our guilt. And the only one who can do that is God. The only one who can, who can illuminate the heart to an understanding of human nature in general and your nature in particular is the Holy Spirit of God. The one who hovered over the land as it was created. The, the world as God made it. The one who was there as God spoke all things into existence. He's the one who penetrates the darkness of a heart that thinks it's okay. That thinks that it is not guilty. It is innocent. And shows to the eyes of that person. The sinfulness of sin. We need the spirit. So if you think you're okay this morning. And you have nothing to do with Christ. You haven't trusted Christ. The problem is not that you are okay. The problem is that you're blind. You're blind to your sin. 
You don't actually see the depth of your wickedness. You don't actually see the reality of your condemnation before God. And you need God's spirit to show you, to illuminate your heart, to awaken you, to give you new birth. As Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. And when he does that, you will fall on your face before this Christ as king. And you will say, I deserve nothing, God, but condemnation. But you took it upon yourself, Christ, in my place. And now I have free grace, mercy from this God. I'll also say, as far as the believer's concern, this lifelong recognition of guilt is the path to meekness in difficult times. And here's what I mean. The heart, I recently heard a brother in our church share this, and I won't say his name. But it really moved me. He commented on some really difficult situations in his life. And he said, but God doesn't owe me anything. He's been with me. And he began to cite all the ways that God was gracious in the midst of the very challenging circumstances that he was finding himself in. And he he just, with, with such authenticity, said, God doesn't owe me anything. Everything I have from him is grace and mercy. It's undeserved. That's the heart of a Christian. That's meekness. That's meekness, lowliness, humility before God. That comes out of a recognition of what we deserve. We deserve guilt. We deserve hell. Make no mistake about it, Christian. You do deserve hell. Christ did not. He took your hell so that you could have heaven. So we see further development in their hearts through this utter submission. But secondly and ultimately we see it in the substituting. As we close this morning, as we come to the end, we see the substituting. Verses 17 to 34. Here, Judah As the representative of the brothers, humbly gives a history and a plea. The history records two major interactions. The one with Joseph, in which they are required to return with Benjamin. And the one with their father, in which Jacob very reluctantly lets Benjamin go. He gives a little history of the entire episode. Going back to the very beginning of the entire story. He explains what happened beginning in chapter 39. He explains what happened with their, their coming. Hey, do you remember uh, Lord of the land? He humbly comes to him. says, you are powerful like Pharaoh. Well, you know, you, you, we had this conversation with you and you said this and we said this. And, and then and we went back to our father and this is what happened in the conversation with our father. By the way, this is the first time that Joseph comes to know what his father has been feeling. And what his father's response was to his Supposed death. Judah gives this history. And in reporting all of this, Judah is forced to articulate two important things. First, that Jacob thought Joseph was torn to pieces by wild animals. So Judah is forced in giving this history. He's forced to communicate to Joseph the lie that he told his father. By by conveying what his father said, which was based on the lie of the brothers... He's forced to come, once again, face to face with his guilt as he's telling the story. 
This keeps the guilt before his mind. The deed itself, the lying, the grief that he's brought on his father. Second, that Benjamin is the favored son. This is another important point that we see in this discourse about the history. That Benjamin is the favored son. He has, Judah has, come, has to come face to face with the thing that made him sin against Joseph. What was it that made him sin against Joseph? Joseph was the favored son. He was the favorite. His father showed him partiality. And now in recording this history, Judah is forced to face the reality that Benjamin is the favorite son. He's forced to face his guilt and he's forced to face that obstacle to doing what he ought to do with regard to Benjamin. Then we have the plea. We have the history and we have the plea. The plea We find with these beautiful words, verse 33, Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. Judah cannot return without his brother. He cannot allow this second stroke of grief to befall his father, and so he offers himself as a substitute for his brother. That as far as the the Lord of the land is concerned, Benjamin stole my silver cup. And Judah says, treat me as though I stole your silver cup and let Benjamin go. Treat treat me as you would Benjamin and treat Benjamin as you would me. We see three things here that serve to reverse Judah's previous actions. First, honesty and faithfulness to his promise to Jacob to be a pledge for the boy. Remember, Judah said before they brought Benjamin to Egypt, he said, I will be a pledge for him for his safety. If anything happens to him, you require it of me. Here we see honesty and faithfulness. Reversing, do you see this? Notice this, reversing his former deceit. Formerly, he had lied right to the face of his father, broken his heart. And now we see this faithfulness to his father. Second, concern for the welfare of his father. There are 14 occurrences of the word father throughout this speech. He now shows a deep concern for his father, whereas before he destroyed the heart of his father. Third, rather than harming his brother Benjamin, he goes to the other end of the spectrum and he sacrifices himself In order to save him. We see an entire reversal. In this one moment. We see an entire reversal. Of all that had gone before. And Judah acts as a representative. Of the whole family. Of all the brothers. In this moment. Kent Hughes comments. We must never underestimate. The transforming grace of God. Just as God was with Joseph and his brothers across those two almost silent decades. So he is with all his children. Do you think that those brothers felt God with them those 20 years? What do you think their experience was of God over those 20 years? I'm sure that in, in, in many cases and in many situations, they probably felt as though God was entirely absent. They had just been handed over to their sin, handed over to the consequences of their sin. They were just out to sea all alone. And yet we learn something here. Minute by minute, day by day, the God of Israel had been working 
transforming, sanctifying, molding, restoring the hearts of these men. And in this glorious, wonderful moment, Judah's plea, his plea as a substitute for his brother, reveals all that this hidden God had been doing in his heart. That's the way God often works. You may say this morning, I've been stuck here for three years, five years, ten years. You're not stuck. You may feel that way, but the Lord is with you. He's never let you go, and he never will let you go. And there will be moments in the, in the future when, when you will see all that he's been doing in your dryness, in your feelings of solitude, in your lack of energy, all that he's been doing to restore you, to sanctify you, and to bring you home. He's at work transforming you into Christ. We know that from the Bible. We know that, that from Scripture. God promises to sanctify us and conform us into the image of Christ. At any moment, that's what God is doing in your life, Christian. At any moment, whether you feel it or not. It's a promise. As we close once again, we have Judah as a type of Christ. It's beautiful. Substituting himself for his brother, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ, who is the descendant of Judah, the promised lion, the promised king, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here's the difference, though. Judah was a pretty tarnished substitute. Judah was a guilty man. And he was substituting himself for Benjamin. It's just a type. It's just a picture. Christ was entirely without sin. I heard Paul Washer one time give a sermon at a conference. It was the most, probably the most moving sermon I've ever heard. It was on 2 Corinthians 5.21. And he preached on the sinlessness of Christ. That not a single sin existed in his heart. He had never been unfaithful to the Father. Never, not one moment did he not love his neighbor. Never one moment did he ever depart from meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. He was perfect, perfect, gloriously perfect. That's Christ. And he said, here, give me your sin and I'll give you my righteousness before God. And now Christian, when God sees you, he sees Christ. He sees perfection. He sees snow white perfection. And it's only on that basis that he'll let you into heaven. Not on your righteousness because it says nothing. Christ's righteousness alone can stand before God. As Craig read earlier from Isaiah 53, verses 5 to 6, speak of this substitution. And this is where I'll close this morning. Isaiah 53, 5 to 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're not a Christian this morning, hear this. It's simple. Look to this Christ and he will save you. 
We are justified by faith alone. You will never clean your life up. You will never earn the favor of this God. It doesn't matter what resolutions you walk out of here this morning with. There's only one response, and that is fall on your face, recognize your guilt, and look to Christ as your Savior. That's the only way we can be saved. That's the only way you will leave here a truly different person than when you came in.